Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we'll be reading this morning, verses 25 through 37. Very familiar passage. Did I say 11? 10. Sorry, I'm ahead of myself. Uh, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Very familiar passage this morning. Let's pray together before we read. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity once again to... Uh, read your word. We thank you for the opportunity to come before your word, to listen to it, to hear it. Uh, we thank you for all that are here this morning, Lord. We thank you. We do thank you for our mothers and all that they mean to us. And we pray now that you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We pray that you will speak, that you will shine a light on this passage and teach us and transform us as we walk our way through it this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 11, verses 25 through 37. This is God's Word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and he saw him and passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by. On the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. I was at a movie theater several years ago, and I had been looking forward to seeing this movie for a long, long time. In fact, a lot of people had been looking forward to seeing this particular film for a long time. There was lots of anticipation, lots of build-up, lots of reviews, lots of write-ups. It was based upon what some people call uh, the most popular book series of the 20th century. 
there was a poll done in Europe, and it was the most popular book series of the 20th century. And they were finally making a series of films about these books, and there we were, and the place was packed. It was opening night. It was late. I was sitting next to some some dear friends of, of mine, and after the screen lit up and the coming attractions were finished, now finally the film. <laughs> and you guessed it. Can you guess it? J- just as the film started, somebody's cell phone went off. But what I will never forget was the reaction <laughs> to this to this cell phone going off. Somebody's cell phone goes off in this dark theater with it right before this film that everybody's looking forward to. It was ugly. About dozens of people stood up, turn it off. Why? It's just a movie. They didn't want to miss a thing. They didn't want to miss the story. They wanted to hear every line, including the very first word, the very first note of music. They had been looking forward to this for a long, long time. I remember reading to our children stories at night, and we would cut off and and many, many times, don't stop, don't stop, particularly with the... The Hobbit, have you ever read The Hobbit? Keep going, keep going, keep going. Nope, tomorrow night. We have said that our goal in this series that we started a few weeks ago was to come face to face with Jesus through the stories that he told. And he's always doing that. He's always asking questions and he's always telling stories. And our goal, week after week after week, will be to sit up and take notice. And maybe hear something we haven't heard before, because many of these stories, particularly this one today, are very, very well known here and around the world. But we're coming face to face with Jesus, with those in the Bible who come face to face with Jesus, and we want to sit up, we want to take Notice, and is there a more familiar story, a more famous story than this one that Jesus ever told? Maybe this is the most famous thing that Jesus ever said. If you were raised in the church, you learned this as a child. If you weren't, you heard it somewhere. The Good Samaritan. It's the story about hypocrites. It's the story of a priest and a Levite, important religious people that pass by on the other side and they overlook somebody in need, right? Yes, but there's, there's much, much more. There really is. There's, there's much, much more to it than that. Jesus is being, as he often is, confronted by a scholar, an Old Testament scholar, somebody that most likely has memorized the entire Old Testament. 
Not an expert in the civil law. When we think of lawyer, we think of expert in civil law. This is an expert in Bible law, an expert in the Bible, an expert in the Old Testament, an expert in the biblical law, and he knows it well. And when he comes to test, to challenge, to question Jesus, first of all, notice what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not get into some long, abstract sort of defense of the faith. Nothing wrong with that at times, but that's typically not how Jesus teaches. He doesn't get into some long, disembodied argument. He tells a story. And here is the very heart of this story. I hope you'll see it this morning. This story gets to the very heart of what it means to know Jesus Christ and to live for Jesus Christ. This well-known story gets to the very heart of what it is to be a Christian and to live as a Christian. It gets to the very fundamentals, the very basics of what it is to experience new life in Jesus Christ, to be born again, and then to walk with Him through life. Then to walk with Him through life, to know Jesus and to live for Jesus. What does it mean to know Jesus? You know... We're here to be honest. Much of what people understand about Christianity is not Christianity. It's moralism. It's do's and don'ts. It's earning and it's meriting. It's climbing a ladder to heaven based upon my accomplishments. And we see Jesus, we often see Jesus as a means to that end, a means to self-improvement, to making ourselves better, to being better people. While climbing a, a stairway to heaven. And Jesus is there to help us do that. And we, get it, we enter a bargain with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I'll do this and then you do this. If I do this, will you do this? I promise this if you'll promise that. I remember reading a few years ago about the death of Eunice Kennedy Shriver. She was a very famous member of the Kennedy family, but she was known for doing good things. Sort of a modern-day Good Samaritan in a very real sense. And the, the write-up in the paper said this. Inspired by her love of God, devotion to her family, and her relentless belief in the dignity and worth of every human life, she worked without ceasing, uh, searching, pushing, demanding, hoping for change. She understood what her parents taught her. Much is expected from those to whom much is 
given. And she went on to found the Special Olympics and help people with special needs. And this was an online article. And I remember reading at the bottom, somebody wrote in in response. Eunice Kennedy Shriver was truly a remarkable woman who has earned her way to heaven. Eunice Kennedy Shriver was truly a remarkable woman, never forget that, who has earned her way to heaven. That's what many of us think. That's what many people believe. That's many, what many people in America and around the world think that Christianity is. It's earning our way to heaven. Now, I'm not making a judgment one way or another as to whether she is in heaven or not, or that she did good things, but this person's understanding of Christianity. And here's our story. The lawyer stands up, which is a sign of respect to a teacher in the first century, but then he questions, which is a sign of hostility in the first century. He stands, he questions, and he asks the question that people have been asking for thousands of years. He asks the question that virtually everybody asks at some point in his or her life. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How can I go to heaven? How can I live forever? What do I need to do? What do I need to do? And Jesus answers, as he often does, with a question. uh, What is written in the law? How do you read it? You're the expert. (laughs) You're the expert. And the lawyer goes back to the passages that we read earlier in the service from Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19, I am to love the Lord my God with all that I am and my neighbor as myself. With my heart, soul, strength, mind. And Jesus says, that's exactly right. Go for it. You're right. If you can be perfectly loving to God and perfectly obedient, and perfectly love other people as yourself. You do not need me. You do not need Jesus, and you do not need grace if you are perfect. But if you've ever been around another human being for any length of time, we're not perfect. And then... They go back and forth in this dialogue. Okay, essentially the lawyer says, and now he's trying to justify himself. I think I can do these things, but let me be clear. Who exactly is my neighbor? Let me make sure I'm really clear. Who exactly is my neighbor and who isn't my neighbor? Who's included in this group? Who's excluded? To whom do I need to be doing good things? 
to whom do I need to be doing good things? And, and Jesus, you've got to love the way Jesus teaches. Jesus says, once upon a time there was a man. He tells this famous story. And he places it in a setting that everybody knows. The famous, dramatic, dangerous road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Everybody knows it. And there was a man who was traveling that road. It doesn't say what kind of man. There was a man that was traveling this famous, dangerous road that everybody knows of, and he is robbed. And he is stripped. And he is beaten. And he's left for dead. And a priest happens along. Now this this priest is coming home, most likely to Jericho from Jerusalem. He's probably been in Jerusalem for two weeks and he's been doing his priestly duties in the temple courts and he's heading home. And he sees something at a distance. Not sure what it is. (laughs) And as he gets closer, he recognizes he's got a conflict. Now look, this is a man, this is a community leader. He's highly respected. He's probably wealthy, and he's probably mounted. He's probably on a a donkey, some kind of mount. He's riding. And he sees this man at a distance, and he's got this conflict, and he recognizes, look, I've I've got some issues here. If I get too close, I'll be defiled. If I touch him, I'll be defiled. And if that happens, I'll have to go all the way back to Jerusalem, go through the purification process again for a week. What about my family? What about my servants? What about the poor in Jericho who are depending upon me? I've received the tithes, which is basically his pay. He's on his way back to his family, his community, his servants, the poor, and then this man is there before his eyes. He also recognizes that if he becomes somehow defiled by getting too close or touching and he has to go back, he will be shamed publicly by other priests. What do you do? Play it safe. Move on. That's the choice that he makes. He's certainly in a position to help. He's mounted. He's wealthy. He's highly respected. He knows people, but he doesn't. Here comes a Levite. What's a Levite? A Levite is an assistant to a priest. He's been doing the same thing in Jerusalem. He's been working in the temple courts. He's probably walking. He's not as he's not wealthy. So somebody who's walking is especially concerned about knowing who else is on the road. 
Did you ever see Lawrence of Arabia? In the, those dramatic desert scenes and the music comes up and somebody in the distance, this little faded image is either coming or going. It's either mounted or not. It's either friend or foe. People on this road make it their business to know who else is on the road because their lives could depend upon it. And he sees this beaten man. Now, he doesn't have the same purity issues that the priest did. But he comes up close, and just like, just like the priest, he sees that the man is naked. He can't speak, so they don't know, is this man some kind of a pagan? Is this man Jewish? What, what is his social rank? Neither one of them can tell because he's, he's naked. He can't speak. If he's an obedient Jew, both of them have a responsibility to do something for him, but they can't tell because he can't speak and he's, he's not dressed. And he certainly wouldn't want to show up the priest and he'll certainly want to follow the priest's example. I don't know. I'll move on. I don't know. Kenneth Bailey is a man who lived many, many years in the Middle East. He's probably known as the preeminent Middle Eastern Christian biblical scholar. And his, this is his conclusion. I think he's right on here. He's talking about the priest and the Levite. The priest and the Levite are victims of a rule book system. For them, life is a code of do's and don'ts. This mentality persists in many forms in our day and continues to claim to offer security, the security of having quick answers to all of life's problems and questions. Simple black and white answers. These men have rule book relationships. Do you have rule book relationships? Have you ever had a rule book relationship? A relationship that says, look, if you do this, then I'll do this. If you do this, then I'll love you. If you do this, then I will help you. If you do this, then I will accept you. The lawyer is asking, who exactly is my neighbor? Who's included? Who's excluded? Have you ever been in a relationship where someone essentially just stands back and folds their arms and says, prove it? Prove it. If you live up to my standards, but it's going to take you a while, prove it. You might make the grade. And we have to say this. We can't approach this without saying this. This is really, really, really tragic when it happens in churches. When um, 
the, the preaching or the teaching or the, the community life is based upon prove it, earn it, maybe if you live up to it. You kind of have to earn your way in to a church or earn your way into a, a community. And what typically happens is when that happens in a church, two things happen. One, arrogance. Hey, boy, I am so glad we're so, be- so much better than other churches. And we do things right and we do ministry right and on and on. We've got it together. We're not like those people. We're even proud of our humility. We're so humble and loving and gracious and kind and accepting. Um, I, I, I hate to admit it. I've been in ministry for a long, long time, and I have seen God has a way of addressing those issues in ministries. <laughs> Some of you are nodding your heads if you've been around. Whether it's a parachurch ministry or a church, God has a way of addressing those things. But on the other hand, what can also happen if you have rule book relationships in your families, in your marriages, in your churches, you can just despair. I can't live up to this. You you break under the load. And you always feel guilty about something. I keep struggling with the same sin or I stay awake at night or... Or here's one. I hear this all the time as a pastor. Well, nobody else has this problem that I have. Nobody else has. Yes, they do. They do. We've got a whole room full of problems this morning. They do. But it can be so discouraging to live in a, with rule book relationships. Well, here comes the Samaritan. Here comes hope. (laughs) Here comes hope. Who's the Samaritan? He's an outsider. He kind of comes out of nowhere. He's a half-breed. He's hated. He's a, a member of a hated ethnic group. He's not like us, they say. This this story is like telling a story to Palestinians and making an Israeli the hero. Or vice versa. This is not what they expect. This is not what the lawyer would certainly expect. Maybe a a priest and a Levite and then a lay person who's a Jew, but a a Samaritan. A Samaritan. (laughs) But a Samaritan... Verse 33, as he journeyed, came to where he was, this man in the ditch, half dead. And when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, we need to stay right there on that word for just a minute. That's one of my favorite Greek words. I like just saying it. It's one of my favorite Greek words in the New Testament. Splonk nidzomai. You take that home, that's free. Splonk nidzomai. Now, why is splonk nidzomai? It sounds like something you'd eat with meatballs or something. What does it mean? It, its root is, is 
gut. <laughs> gut. But you know what it's getting at? It's getting at what we would, how we would phrase it. His heart went out. How many times have you said, oh, my heart goes out? When you're confronted with some tragedy, my heart goes out to them. My heart goes out to that family. My heart goes out to that mother. We could go on and on. And this is a word that is used over and over and over and over in the Gospels with reference to Jesus. When Jesus is approaching a town and he sees a mother weeping, in Luke 7, because she has lost her son, her son has died. Well, I'll just read it. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. And then he said to the young man, Arise. And the young man got up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him, it's wonderful, Jesus gave him to his mother. You remember the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, the prodigal's coming home, and the father sees him coming. And he arose and came to his father, the prodigal son did, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. His heart went out. It's Luke chapter 15. Matthew 9, one more. Time after time, Jesus looks at the crowds. Look for it in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Time after time, Jesus looks at the crowds and has splonknizomai, has compassion. His heart goes out. This word, this Greek word, doesn't mean feeling Stop. It means feeling inaction. It doesn't mean, oh, I'm so sorry. It means I'm so sorry I'm going to do something about it. And I am feeling so deeply I'm going to follow through. Jesus is saying, look, how do we read this on this side of the cross and resurrection and not see Jesus? Jesus is... The ultimate good Samaritan. Jesus is saying in his word, I'm the good Samaritan. I come out of nowhere. I'm the outsider. I'm despised. I take on the danger. I rescue you. I heal you. I treat your wounds. And I pay what you cannot pay. I pay what you cannot pay. Hey, as someone once said, the, the very essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. The very essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us, putting himself where only we deserve to be. Jesus is saying, I'm the good Samaritan. I remember my son's first Mother's Day card. 
I always think of it this time of year. He had just learned to write. I bought the card he wanted to write. He wouldn't show me what he was going to write. So I handed it to him, and he wrote something, put it in the envelope, gave it to Cindy. She opened it, got this big smile on her face. I still didn't know what it said. She handed it to me, and it said, Mom, I'll always love you no matter what you do. Out of the mouth. He will always love us no matter what you do. And that's the main thing we need to get today. Face to face with Jesus, knowing Jesus, recognizing Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one that rescues us. We're the ones who are in the ditch. But what does it mean to live for Jesus? Let's put it this way. You know, we often say we love because he first loved us. We are called to be good Samaritans because he was first a good Samaritan to us. We are called to bear fruit. Love overflows. The love that Jesus gives us overflows from faith to fruit, to, from belief to life. Jesus is essentially saying to this lawyer here, you have the wrong question. Who do I have to be a neighbor to? Here's the question you ought to be asking. How can I be a better neighbor? Not pointing at other people and how, that, how should they be neighbor. How can I be a better neighbor? How should I be a better neighbor? You know, I don't know how you came to Christ or why you're even here today. Glad you're here. Come back. But most people, by far most people, are not argued into the church, argued into the faith. Some people got to work out their philosophical... Most people, by far most people, are loved into the church. They're loved into community. They're loved into Christianity. The action of, of love... They're, lo- they're here at the church, or God has used them to bring somebody to Christ. Why? Because they were a neighbor in, in this sense, because they were a neighbor. God used them as a neighbor. Love is the greatest Christian apologetic. It doesn't mean there's no room for theology and philosophy and all those things. I love that kind of stuff, but it all comes back to love. Loving other people. G.K. Chesterton, the ever-quotable G.K. Chesterton once said, sometimes the greatest argument against Christianity is Christians. Jesus is calling us to love others. I'll close with this. Have you ever seen the movie Amazing Grace? Please put it at the top of your list if you haven't. Just a few years old, very well done. You know, sometimes movies like this are kind of cheesy. This one is really good. If you've never seen it, it's the story of 
essentially two men, two men that I have looked up to for a long time. They're dead, but I've looked up to them for a long time. William Wilberforce, maybe you've never heard of him, but John Newton. And they both had very different lives as, as young men. One, William Wilberforce, boy, he had it all. He was from a wealthy merchant family. He lived in England. He went to Cambridge. He was smart. He was a musician. He was a great speaker. He was a great writer. Everybody said, you're going to go a long way. In fact, you will be prime minister someday. And then he was converted. And he was asked by a friend, have you found God? He said, no, uh, God has found me, and you have no idea how inconvenient that is. And he dedicated almost his entire adult life to the abolition of the slave trade in the British Empire. He was attacked. He had assassination attempts. Um, He was hated. Many times he was just a lonely voice calling out in the wilderness, this is wrong. These men lived at the same time as our Revolutionary War. This is wrong. And he came back year after year after year, and and finally, after many years of bringing the same bill back, um, slavery, the slave trade, was outlawed in the British Empire in 1807. And shortly after he died, slavery was outlawed in 1833, long before America. Because this man kept coming back, and his pastor was a man named John... Newton, and he lost his mother at a young age. He wasn't wealthy. He spent much of his life all around the world on on ships. He got flogged. He experienced shipwrecks. (laughs) He was pressed into service in in the Navy. He became a, a slave trader. And then he was converted to Christ and he served in a little church in England in, in Olney for, for decade after decade after decade after decade. Just a little simple church. Wrote Amazing Grace and many other hymns that you would recognize. But he would wake up from time to time in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. He says this in a number of places. And he would see the faces. (laughs) He would see the the faces of some of these slaves. And somebody said, what do you do when that happens? You've been converted. You're living your life for Christ and you still struggle. What do you do when that happens? And he said this. This is what I do. This is what I say to myself. I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I am certainly not what one day I will be, but I'm not what I was. And by the grace of God, I am who I am. I am one who knows and loves Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life. I am a great sinner 
but He is a much, much greater Savior. Lord, we thank You for this message today that, that is Yours, that is Yours uh, in Your Word. We are reminded of, of what it is to know Christ, what it is to live for Christ, what it is to have our lives transformed by the Good Samaritan and be Good Samaritans as a result of having our lives transformed, have our lives full of love and have that love overflow. Lord, we pray that we would recognize that rule book relationships get us nowhere. That you came to rescue us, to heal us, to save us, to pay the debt we couldn't pay. And Lord, we pray that we would love you so much and we would be so full of love and so full of joy and so full of Jesus. What a friend for sinners. That like these men we have just mentioned, we would say, here am I. Send me. What would you have me do? Where would you have me go? How can I show and and evidence the love of Jesus Christ and be a better neighbor? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.